Chapter 18, Part 2 of J. B. Bury's The Student's Roman Empire, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Penfold. The Student's Roman Empire, Part 1, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter 18, Part 2. It was probably in the tableland of Erzurum that the warfare of the year 58 A.D. was carried on. The campaign began by a slight reverse for the Romans. Corbulo had posted some auxiliary infantry in certain defensive positions under the command of a centurion to whom he had given strict orders to keep within the entrenchments. But this officer, seeing what he thought a favorable opportunity, disobeyed and was defeated. The general punished both officers and soldiers by making them encamp outside the rampart, and they were only released from this disgrace when the whole army interceded. When spring was well advanced, Corbulo did all in his power to force into an engagement Tiridates, who was scouring the country and plundering all whom he thought friendly to Rome. Weary of following the enemy hither and thither, Corbulo divided his forces so that his legati and prefects might attack several points at the same time. His operations were supported by Antiochus, king of Comagene, advancing from the south, and Pharismanes of Iberia, who desired to redeem his former treachery and had already put to death his son Radamistus from the north. A people called the Moshi, who dwelled near the sources of the river Phasis, also assisted Rome. Vologases was occupied in another quarter of his kingdom by a revolt of the Hyrcanians, and Tiridates found himself unable to cope with the superior forces of the Romans. He therefore entered into negotiations with Corbulo, who advised him to send a petition to the emperor. As it was found that the interchange of messages did not lead to a settlement, an interview was arranged between the commanders. Tiridates proposed to arrive himself with a thousand horsemen, and that Corbulo should be accompanied by as many soldiers as he chose, provided they came without helmets and breastplates, so as to give the appearance of peace. The wary old general was not deceived by this offer, so transparently treacherous. Tiridates intended that his trained archers should shoot down the escort of Corbulo, whose numbers would be of no avail if their bodies were undefended. Corbulo, however, pretended not to see through the stratagem, but replied that it would be better to discuss the matters in dispute in the presence of the whole armies. On the appointed day he arrived first and disposed his troops, but Tiridates did not appear till the afternoon, and then stood at a distance, whence he could be seen rather than heard. Thus no conference took place, and Tiridates presently marched off, apparently in a northwesterly direction, perhaps intending to cut off the supplies which the Roman army drew from Trapezus. Corbulo now ceased to follow Tiridates, and prepared a series of attacks on the Armenian fortresses. He undertook himself the assault on Volandum, the strongest in the district, and assigned the lesser forts to the subordinate officers. Volandum lay west of Artaxata and south of the river Araxes. Corbulo formed his troops in four divisions and assigned to each a different task. One part, with their shields locked above their heads, in the army known as Testudo, advanced close to the rampart to undermine it. Others applied scaling ladders to the walls. Others hurled javelins and brands from the engines, while the slingers at a distance discharged leaden balls against the garrison. 
Within the third part of a day, the walls were stripped of their defenders, the barricades of the gate were thrown down, the fortifications scaled and captured, all the adults butchered, without the loss of a single Roman soldier. Corbulo's officers were equally successful in their less difficult enterprises, and he was encouraged by this success to attack Ardixata, the capital of the country. On the march thither the Romans were attacked by the cavalry of Tiridates, who had hoped to take them unawares. But Corbulo had formed his army for fighting as well as for marching. On the right and left sides the third and sixth legions marched respectively, and a chosen body of the fifth was placed in the center. The baggage was secured within the lines, and the rear was guarded by a thousand cavalry, who were ordered to resist if attacked, but not to pursue. On the wings were placed the footbowmen and the rest of the cavalry. The left wing was extended further along the foot of the hills, so that if the enemy broke through the center, his flank might be enveloped by the extended wing. Tiridates rode up in the face of the advancing army, but taking care to keep out of the range of missiles. His object was to loosen the ranks by threatening an attack and then to fall on the separated divisions, but his design failed. Only one cavalry officer advanced rashly and fell pierced with arrows. His example confirmed the others in obedience to orders, and Tiridates retired on the approach of night. Corbulo thought of advancing on Artaxata the same night and beginning the blockade but when his scouts reported that Tiridates had started on a distant march, either to Medea or Albania, he waited for daylight and then sent on his light-armed troops with directions to begin the attack at a distance. But no siege was necessary. The inhabitants immediately opened the gates and surrendered, and thereby saved their lives. The city was burnt to the ground, as Corbulo could not spare a sufficient garrison, and the place was too strong to be left unoccupied. The army seems to have wintered in the neighborhood of Artaxata, and in the following year, 59 AD, to have marched to Tigrana Certa, which they reached in autumn. The line of march which Corbulo followed is not certain. It seems probable that he proceeded southward from Artaxata, and skirting the foot of Little Ararat, entered the plain of Bayazid, whence, following the basin of the river Balik, he could have crossed the watershed of that stream and the Murad at Jadin, and thence marched along the Murad through the plain of Arishgird. The way would then lie through the plain of Mush, and southeastward across the Bitlis Pass and Tigranocerta. On this march the Roman general made no hostile demonstrations, but did not relax his vigilance, knowing the character of the Armenians, who were as treacherous when opportunity offered, as they were slow to face danger. Those who submitted received quarter, but to those who fled or hid themselves in caverns, Corbulo was pitiless. He burnt them out of their holes, filling the entrances and egresses with brushwood. The Mardi of Mount Nephates were especially troublesome, and defied him in their mountain fastnesses. Corbulo set the Iberians on them, so as to avoid the sacrifice of Roman lives, in this march the Romans suffered as much from heat as they had suffered during the winters from cold. They were exhausted by shortness of supplies and were compelled to depend solely on the cattle of the country. This meat diet without any other food was found to be very injurious. Besides this, water was scarce, and the marches in the burning heat were long. At length they reached cultivated lands, perhaps in the neighborhood of Malazgird, and were able to obtain vegetable food. Two Armenian fortresses were taken, and then they crossed into the country of the Taranites, which is probably to be identified with the district of Mush, west of Lake Van. Here Corbulo's life was endangered. 
a barbarian of considerable rank was discovered with a dagger near the general's tent and on being tortured confessed the names of confederates who were associated with him the men were convicted and punished soon after this envoys whom corbulo had sent to tigrana certa returned and reported that the gates were open to receive him and the inhabitants ready to obey his orders they also brought a golden crown a gift betokening the friendship of the city corbulo left the place intact and then proceeded against lagerda a fortress to the west of tigrana certa the stronghold was defended by a brave band and was stormed with difficulty this success seems to have marked the end of the campaign. Tiridates made some further attempts to re-establish himself in Armenia, but was promptly checked by Corbulo. The land was completely in Roman power, and a new king was chosen, 60 A.D. The choice of the government fell on Tigranes, a young prince who had been brought up in Rome, descended on the father's side from Herod the Great, and on the mother's from Archelaus of Cappadocia. But the realm which Nero conferred on Tigranes was considerably less than that which the previous kings had ruled. It was curtailed by some frontier districts, which were distributed between neighboring princes, Pharasmanes, Antiochus, Aristobulus, and Polemo of Pontus. Tigranes sought to increase his kingdom on another side, by wrestling Adiabene from Parthia. He invaded that province and defeated the governor Monobasis. This occurrence forced the Parthian monarch, who had abstained from interfering in the recent war in Armenia, to take a decisive step. He confirmed the sovereignty of Tiridates in Armenia, placing the diadem on his head in solemn council, and sent his general Manases to drive out the Roman usurper. In the meantime, Quadratus, the governor of Syria, had died, and, pending the appointment of a successor, the command both in Syria and Cappadocia devolved upon Corbulo. That general sent two legions to Armenia to support Tigranes, who was besieged by the Parthians in Tigranocerta. But it was not the interest of Corbulo to finish the war and shorten his own command. The two legions which he sent were not those which had been trained by himself, but four and seven, which had remained behind in Syria and were quite inefficient. Moreover, he is said to have given secret instructions to the two commanders, to whom he committed the charge of the legions, to act with deliberation rather than with expedition, for he would rather have war on hand than prosecute it. He himself prepared to cross the Euphrates and meet Vologeses, but the Parthian monarch, again, as so often before, shrank from war at the last moment. The attack of his general upon Tigranocerta had been completely unsuccessful. He opened negotiations and declared himself ready to fulfill the conditions of the treaty which had been proposed in 55 AD, and let his brother hold Armenia as vassal of the Roman emperor. Corbulo accepted the proposal, withdrew his legions from Armenia, gave up the cause of Tigranes, 61 AD, and permitted Tiridates to resume his possession of the land. It was said by some, and it is not improbable, that there was a secret understanding between Corbulo and Vologeses. In any case, these proceedings of Corbulo cannot be justified. He may have honestly thought that the arrangement which he twice attempted to make with Vologeses was the best solution of the Armenian question. But once the Roman government had set up Tigranes, he had no right to give up the results which had been won by his own campaigns. Moreover, he was at this time only a temporary commander, and Lucius Cassanius Paetus was already on his way to assume the government of Cappadocia, to which he had been appointed. It is possible that Corbulo was jealous of his successor, and wished to deprive him of the honor of the final subjugation of Armenia. 
in any case corbulo did not act in accordance with the views of the government and when the ambassadors of Vologases presented themselves at rome the treaty was not confirmed there is some ground for believing that at this moment it was actually contemplated to make armenia a roman province and this certainly was the view of the new governor of cappadocia thus armenia had to be conquered again the two legions which were stationed in Cappadocia were to be reinforced by a legion from Macia, and Paetus, as soon as he arrived in his province, lost no time in setting out. He crossed the Euphrates at Melitini, and marched through Sophini, capturing forts and booty on his way. His first object was the recovery of Tigranocerta, but it was late in the year, 62 AD, and he was obliged to defer this enterprise until next season, especially as the Macian legion had not yet arrived. He established the winter quarters of the 4th legion at Randea, a place on the borders of Sophini, close to the Taurus range, and situated on the north bank of the Arsanius, Mirad. In the meantime, Corbulo had taken up a position on the banks of the Euphrates, near Zugma, to prevent the forces of Vologases from invading Syria. The Parthian king, learning that the two legions of Paetus were not together, that the camp at Randea was badly supplied with provisions, and that Paetus was granting furloughs indiscriminately to all the soldiers who applied for them, suddenly determined to invade Armenia, notwithstanding the lateness of the season, and surprise the Roman camp before reinforcements could arrive. Corbulo did nothing to hinder the march of the Parthians into Armenia. Perhaps he was secretly pleased at the prospect of the other commander getting into difficulties. When Paetus heard that Vologases was approaching with a large force, he summoned the seventh legion to his headquarters, and then fully realized the numerical weakness of his forces. The whole army advanced in the direction from which the Parthians were approaching, but when a centurion and some soldiers, who had been sent on to reconnoitre, were killed in a collision with an advanced party of the enemy, it retreated to the camp. Vologases did not press on immediately, and Paetus posted a body of three thousand chosen infantry in the pass of Mount Taurus, which the Parthians had yet to pass before they reached Randea, and also placed the best of his cavalry in the plain to support the legionaries. But these forces were utterly insufficient, and were swept away before the advance of the Parthian army. The unwounded fled to distant wilds, the disabled returned to the camp. Thus Paetus was left, having lost the best part of his army through his ill-considered dispositions, and his forces were still further weakened by the withdrawal of a cohort to the defense of the neighboring fort of Arsamasata, whither his wife and son had been removed for safety. His only chance of escape lay in speedy succor from Corbulo, to whom he had already sent a pressing message. But Corbulo did not hurry. He was willing to let the peril increase, in order that the glory of rescuing the army might be enhanced. But he ordered one thousand men from each of his three legions, along with eight hundred cavalry and about four thousand auxiliary infantry, to be in instant readiness to march. When, however, another message arrived from Paetus, with news of the defeat, and earnestly entreating him to come to save the eagles, he set out, leaving half his army to defend the forts on the Euphrates. He marched straight north from Zugma through Camagene and Cappadocia, the route which was shortest and most convenient for obtaining supplies. His army was attended by a large number of camels laden with corn. When he met stragglers from the defeated army, and they alleged various excuses for their flight, he advised them to return to their standards and throw themselves on the mercy of Paetus. I, he said, have no pardon but for the victorious. 
In the meantime, Vologeses pressed both the fortress of Arsamosata and the camp at Randea. He tried to lure the legions from their entrenchments and bring on an engagement. But the Roman soldiers were demoralized and had no intention of fighting. They only thought of escaping with their lives. They are said to have quoted the historical disasters of Rome, such as the Caudine Forks and the capitulation of Mancinus at Numantia, and urged that if Romans had yielded to Samnites, it would be no disgrace to capitulate to the greater power of Parthia. The general was forced by this attitude of his troops into treating with the enemy. Yet if he had held out for three days longer, his colleague would have arrived with succor. The terms of the capitulation were that the legions should quit Armenia, that the forts and supplies should be surrendered to the Parthians, and a bridge thrown across the river Arsanius to enable them to carry off the booty. The Romans had to submit to such ignominy. The Parthians and Armenians insulted them as they prepared to retire, and their flight was precipitate. Paetus traversed forty miles in a single day, leaving his wounded all along the route. The fugitives met the army of Corbulo on the banks of the Euphrates, near Militine. Corbulo made no exhibition of standards and arms so as to taunt them by the contrast. His maniples, in their grief for the lot of their comrades, could not even refrain from tears. The mutual salutation was hardly interchanged for weeping. Rivalry and desire of glory, emotions which men feel in success, had died away. Pity alone prevailed and was more deeply felt in the lower ranks. A short conversation took place between Corbulo and Paetus. The defeated general urged that everything might still be retrieved if the whole army were at once to invade Armenia, from which Philogeses had already departed. Corbulo declined, on the ground that his commission from the emperor strictly confined him to the limits of Syria, which he had only left on account of the peril of the legions. Paetus then retired to Cappadocia, and Corbulo to Syria, where messages passed between him and Vologeses, and it was agreed that the Roman fortresses on the Parthian bank of the Euphrates were to be abandoned, while on the other hand the Parthian garrisons were to be removed from Armenia. When Paetus first established his quarters at Randea, he had sent bragging dispatches to Rome, as if he were in possession of the whole country and trophies and arches were erected at Rome in honor of his supposed successes. The arrival of the envoys of Vologeses early in 63 AD exposed the falseness of these pretensions. The letter of the king was moderate, but its tone was that of one who need not condescend to ask for terms. He professed that his brother Tiridates was ready to receive the crown of Armenia as a Roman vassal. Being a Magian priest, Tiridates had a scruple against crossing the sea, otherwise he would have been ready to appear at Rome and receive the diadem from the emperor's hand. But he would willingly go to one of the neighboring camps and do homage to the standards and the image of the emperor. The council of Nero rejected this proposal and sent the envoys back without a formal answer, refusing to accept the terms which were arranged between Corbulo and Vologeses. But they seem to have intimated at the same time that if Tiridates presented himself at Rome in person, an understanding might be effected. But for the present the war was to continue, and preparations were made for it on an unusually large scale. Paetus was recalled, and Corbulo, who, though his recent behavior was certainly open to criticism, was justly recognized to be the most capable general, undertook once more the command in Cappadocia, while C. Cestius Gallus replaced him in Syria. He was now entrusted with larger powers than before, perhaps with an imperium proconsulare. 
all the governors and dependent princes of the east were instructed to obey his commands, and his position resembled that which had been formerly held by Germanicus and Vitellius. The army was increased by the 14th legion, Apollinaris, taken from Pannonia. The whole strength of Corbulo's army, taking into account the troops supplied by neighboring allied princes, probably approached 50,000, and was the most numerous force ever put in the field for an Armenian war. Corbulo crossed the Euphrates and entered southern Armenia, advancing in the direction of Tigranocerta and opening up the route which in former days had been followed by Lucilus when he advanced to overthrow Tigranes. He drove from their possessions those Armenian nobles who had led the revolt against Rome and captured their fortresses. Then Philogaces sent envoys to demand an armistice, and Tiridates proposed a personal interview with the Roman general. Corbulo acceded, and made no objection when Tiridates proposed that the place of meeting should be at Randea, the scene of the disaster of Paetus. He commanded the son of Paetus, who was a military tribune in his army, to take some troops with him and cover up the relics of the battlefield. Tiridates and Corbulo, each attended by twenty horsemen, met on the appointed day. It was agreed that the Parthian should take the diadem from his head, place it in front of the emperor's image, and not resume it until he had formerly received it in Rome from the emperor's own hand. This ceremony was to take place in the presence of both armies, and on the very spot where Paetus had capitulated, so that the memory of the disgrace which had then tarnished Roman arms might in some measure be effaced. The interview ended with a kiss. After a few days the solemnity took place. On one side was ranged the Parthian cavalry with their national decorations, on the other the legions with glittering eagles and standards and images of the gods set so as to represent a temple. Between the armies was a tribunal supporting a chair of state on which a statue of Nero was placed. Tiridates advanced and, having slain the customary victims, removed the diadem from his head and placed it at the foot of the statue. Then Corbulo courteously entertained the king, who prepared to set out for Rome as soon as he had visited his brothers. This time Corbulo's favorite scheme succeeded. New statesmen were influential at Rome, and the vanity of the emperor was gratified by the prospect of giving away the crown of Armenia to a Parthian prince as a humble suppliant. Tiridates, accompanied by three thousand Parthian horsemen, arrived in Rome in 66 AD. The ceremony of investiture took place in the forum, where the brother of Vologases, kneeling at the feet of his overlord, received the crown of Armenia. This settlement of the eastern question lasted for many years. Rome had succeeded in getting rid of a troublesome dependency without losing her prestige or endangering her interests. One more eastern expedition was planned by Nero, but its execution was prevented by his overthrow. It was directed against the Alans, a people who lived north of the Caucasus, and had recently made some plundering excursions in Armenia and Media. The object was probably to occupy the Caucasian Gate, now known as the Dariel Pass, between Tiflis and Vladikaukas, with a permanent garrison. And this was for the advantage of Parthia as well as for that of Rome. The 14th Legion, which was recalled from Britain, and the 1st Italica, newly enrolled for this expedition, were on the way to the east when they were recalled on account of the revolt of Vindex. It remains to tell the fate of Corbulo. His prominent position and services seem to have roused the jealousy of Nero, who summoned him to his presence in Greece, 67 A.D. 
When Corbulo landed at Sencrie, he received a message to the effect that he was expected to cease to live. He plunged his sword in his breast with the words, I deserve it! It is impossible to know whether he had given any real ground of suspicion. He was an able soldier, but his merits, perhaps, have been exaggerated. Tacitus, at least, seems to use the meritorious Corbulo as a sort of antithesis to Nero, just as he set up Germanicus as a foil to Tiberius. And the contrast drawn between Corbulo's unerring generalship and the rash incompetence of Paetus is obviously heightened for the sake of artistic effect. The End of Chapter 18, Part 2 And The End of J. B. Bury's the Student's Roman Empire, Part 1. Recording by Mark Penfold.